Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. A state trooper sees a car puttering along at 15 miles per hour. Thinking the driver is as dangerous as a speeder, the state trooper turns on his lights and pulls the car over. As he approaches the vehicle, the officer notices there are five elderly ladies inside. There are two in the front seat and three in the back, and they're all wide-eyed and white as ghosts. The driver, obviously confused, says, Officer, I don't understand. I was going the exact speed limit. What seems to be the problem? The trooper, trying to suppress a chuckle, explained to her that 15 was the route number and not the speed limit. <laughs> a bit embarrassed, the woman grins and thanks the officer for pointing out this error. Before you go, the officer says, I have to ask, is everyone in this car okay? Your passengers seem awfully shaken. Oh, she answered, they'll be all right, sir. You see, we just got off Route 85. Signs are used for both warnings and directions, and that is also true in the Scripture. Jesus would often accompany his most important teachings with some kind of sign, or we might call it a miracle to prove that what he was saying was actually true. Even today in the atheist and agnostic communities, one main argument against God by sinful man is that God has not done enough to convince them of the truth of his revelation. They say God has done much, but it's not enough. He has acted, but not sufficiently. In Christ's day, the argument went, if you are the Christ, prove it. Do a miracle great enough to convince us that you are who you claim to be. Jesus could have replied to them, well, how about this? What if I raise someone from the dead who has been dead for not four hours, but for four days. We're going to see that even that will not convince them. Look at verse 17 with me. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the woman around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. One of the most unsettling aspects of death is that man has absolutely no control over it. As Ecclesiastes 8.8 puts it, just as man has no authority to restrain the wind, so also no man has the authority over the day of his death. When that day comes, man is torn from the security of his tent, and they march him before the king of terrors, which is a poetic reference found in Job 18.14. The sobering reality that life could end at any moment only underscores its brevity. As Job lamented, man who was born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and then he withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. As for the days of our life, Moses wrote, they, can, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone, and we fly away. 
Now, John selected the miracle of raising Lazarus as the seventh in the series recorded in the book of John because it was really the climactic miracle of the Lord's earthly ministry. He had raised others from the dead, but Lazarus has been dead and in the grave for four days. It was a miracle that could not be denied or avoided by the Jewish leaders. Yet we will see, just like the children of Israel who ate manna and who walked directed by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, we know that even daily miracles then didn't produce true faith. And that's the thing about miracles. They have the life of Chinese food. You get it, and about four hours later, you're hungry again. Let's be clear about this. If Jesus Christ can do nothing about death, then whatever else he can do really amounts to nothing. Now, does that sound harsh? Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. He said, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are of all men the most miserable. Death is man's last enemy, but Jesus has defeated this horrible enemy totally and permanently. Here in John 11, it reveals the deity of Christ and the utter depravity of the human heart. And as an aside, isn't it interesting what the beggar's name was in the story of the rich man in Luke 18? What was it? It was also Lazarus. And if you know that story, the rich man in Hades had argued, if one went up unto them from the dead, then they would repent. In other words, if God would have sent Lazarus back from the dead, the rich man's brothers would have repented. Well, we're going to see that Jesus is actually going to bring the second Lazarus back from the dead. And guess what? Most people are not only not going to repent, they're going to use this resurrection as the final straw in their efforts to kill Jesus. Lazarus came back from the dead, and the officials now want to kill him. Now, miracles certainly reveal the power of God. But of themselves, they cannot communicate the grace of God. And so the stage has been set for the greatest drama in all of human history, during which man would do his worst and God would do his best. But at least for a while, it's going to look like Jesus has shown up four days too late. Verse 19 says, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. During times of crisis and heartache, we need the comfort and counsel that comes from other people. But once again, let's be clear here. No matter how skilled or how loving someone can be, our ability to help is only so beneficial. Now, I've done a fair amount of counseling over the years. And all of us who do any kind of counseling as time goes on, we come to recognize how severely limited we are, at least in the range of the people that we can help. It's kind of a grief for anybody who is a counselor. There is a limited range of people that we can help. Why? Well, some people need confrontation, while some people need nothing but support. 
Some people need what Jesus gives, which is the ministry of truth, which is what he gives to Martha. But sometimes people need the ministry of tears, which is what he is going to give to Mary. People need both sometimes at different times in their lives. But here is where it can get sticky. If you give confrontation to someone who needs support or support to someone who needs confrontation, you can actually harm them. The problem is all of us human counselors are limited in how well that we can do that. Do you know why? Because we all have habitual temperaments. What I mean is we either tend to truth or we tend more to tears. And for various reasons, there's a limited range of people we can really help very well. But not Jesus. Because he is infinitely high and infinitely low. He's deity and utterly human all at once. Therefore, he inhabits the entire spectrum of what every person needs. And because he's infinitely high and infinitely low and infinitely wise about how he deploys his highness and lowness, he is the only perfect counselor. He's the only one who can give you exactly what you need when you need it if you will but look to him. That's the reason why we have a passage like this in Hebrews chapter 4. It says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So what are we to do? The next verse says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you hear that? Tempted in all things just as we were, and yet without sin. And there's the balance that occurs only in Jesus Christ. He is not just a sinless God who doesn't know what it's like to go through what we have gone through and who has never felt the miseries of this life. So on the one hand, we don't have a sinless God who hasn't experienced what we have experienced. But on the other hand, we don't have somebody who's just like us and who's no better than us. How can someone like that help us? No, we have the wonderful counselor. He's infinitely high and infinitely low. He is the God-man. Verse 20, please. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. You've got to love Martha. She and her sister were so different and yet so inspiring in different ways. It's been said of Mary and Martha that if you wanted to give them Christmas gifts, you would give Mary the complete works of Spurgeon and you would give Martha an electric drill. They just have different temperaments. Here in verse 20, we see the contemplative Mary sitting and grieving. And I'm sure thinking why Jesus had let them down in allowing their brother to die. But not Martha. 
Upon hearing Jesus has arrived, she just tears out of the house and goes to meet him. In my mind, Martha is the female version of the Apostle Peter. She is a go-getter who can be very impulsive, just like Peter was. In fact, I bet if she would have been in the garden with Peter that night, she would have cut off Malchus's other ear. She and Peter both seem to have the same motto of ready, fire, aim. But there's something about both of them that I love and can identify with. You'll remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the account of the time that Jesus came to dinner. And while Mary sat at the feet of Jesus learning of his teaching, Martha was just freaking out trying to get dinner ready and worried that the meatloaf was going to burn. However, it's important to know that Jesus did not condemn Martha's service, but he did rebuke her for being torn away by so many different things. She needed to have her priorities and center activities only on the things that God would approve. As an old Wesley hymn puts it, we too need to have a balanced life. The hymn goes like this. Faithful to my, excuse me, faithful to my Lord's commands, I still would choose the better part. Serve with careful Martha's hands and loving with Mary's heart. So as soon as Martha hears that Jesus is on his way, she runs out of the house to go and meet him. Now this is my imagination, so don't take notes on this part. But I can just envision her out of breath arriving in front of Jesus and saying, Lord, if only you would have been here, my brother would not have died. If only. Those two tiny words can carry a mountain of significance. Maybe you, like me, have even said them on occasion. If only my circumstances and my environment was altered. If only so-and-so wasn't so hard to live with. If only I would have had the advantages and the opportunities that other people have. If only my health was better. If only my child would repent. If only I could beat this addiction. If only. If only that insurmountable difficulty, that sorrow, that trouble, if only that could be moved out of my life, then how different things would be and how different I would be. My beloved, you're not the only one who has thought such thoughts. No less a person than the Apostle Paul besought the Lord three times that the thorn in his flesh might be removed from him, and yet... It was allowed to remain. I read about a certain man which had a garden, which might have been very beautiful had it not been disfigured by an immense boulder that reached far under the soil. He tried to blast it out with dynamite, but in the attempt only shattered the windows of his house. Being really self-willed, he used without success one harsh method after another to get rid of the disfigurement until finally he died. The man who next lived in the house soon perceived the hopelessness of striving to budge the boulder. And therefore, he set to work to convert it into a rockery, which he covered with flowers, 
ferns, and vines. It soon came about that the visitors of the garden commented on its unsurpassed beauty. And the owner could never decide which gave him the greater happiness, the harmonious aspect of his garden or the success in adapting to the thing that was too deep to move. So the unsightly boulder, which could not be removed, proved to be the most valuable asset in that garden when dealt with by the one who knew how to turn its very defects into beauty. You know what that teaches us? God often plants his flowers among the rocks. Doesn't that sound nice? God always plants his flowers among the rocks. We can make a bumper sticker out of that, which you can place right next to your Calvary Chapel bumper sticker if you haven't already got one that are free in my office (laughs) that can be given to you right after service. And yes, that was a shameless plug. Now here's the hard part. When God plants his flowers among the rough rocks, what that really means is the rough rocks are often testings and trials, kind of like what Lisa was praying. The Apostle James put it like this. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. But my favorite translation of that verse is by J.B. Phillips. It goes like this. When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as long-lost friends. Realize they have come to test your faith and to produce in you the quality of endurance. Welcome them as long-lost friends. I'll be honest with you this morning. I aspire to do that, but I'm not there yet. But here in verse 22, Martha was quick to affirm her faith in Jesus. And Jesus responded to that faith by promising her that her brother would rise again. Now, he was thinking of the immediate situation, but she interpreted his words to mean the future resurrection on the last day. Here is another instance in the Gospel of John of people lacking spiritual perception and being unable to understand the words of Christ. Martha was saying, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. But now, well, it's just too late. In other words, Jesus has got himself into a predicament. But he got himself into a predicament only so that he might get himself out of it. On this point, Barnhouse writes, I quite believe that God does that with every one of us all the time. That is the Lord's way. If God wants you to trust in him, he puts you in a place of difficulty. But if he wants you to trust in him greatly... He puts you in a place of impossibility. For when a thing is impossible, then we who are so prone to do things by the force of our own being have to say, Lord, this has to be you. 
I am utterly and completely powerless to change any aspect of this. Now, in light of this fabulous miracle, which is the last miracle John records before Jesus is crucified, I call your attention to two principles to jot down, think through, and pray in. The first is that delays are determined by the Lord for His glory. Where are you, Lord? We cry. I sent a message to you in prayer. I've cried out to you in sincerity, but you're not working. You're not coming. Where are you? Lord, come and heal, cry Mary and Martha. But Jesus answers, I'm going to do something a whole lot more impacting than healing. I am going to resurrect him. But that means he has to die first. And that's the problem, isn't it? Who wants to die after all? No one. Who wants to deny himself? Who wants to turn down a chance to fulfill their desires? Nobody. Moreover, we live in the midst of a world that says no to nothing. Even the concept of no is unpopular. But there is one condition of being resurrected. You have to die first. I have found that the longer the Lord waits to do something in my life, the longer that he waits to come onto the scene, oftentimes the greater blessing it is and the more that he receives glory from it. Now you may have said, Lord, use my life no matter what the personal cost to me that involves. But what if that means tragedy? What if it means cancer, bankruptcy, death, setback, or pain? What if God gets the maximum amount of glory when a world who doesn't believe in Him watches you go through terrible times and sees His strength perfected in you? Samson's greatest victory did not take place until he stood as a blind man in the temple of Dagon and brought down the roof upon himself and the enemies of God. And of course, you know what their last words were, don't you? Dag on it. I'm, 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 I'm embarrassed I said that. <clears throat> Back to the Bible. Let me be explicit at this point. If we are really going to experience death and denial that in one sense is the core and basis of the Christian life, then we must be willing to say no to anything that is contrary to God's will and God's way for us. First, that means saying no to anything that's contrary to God's revelation of himself, which is anything then that is contrary to the scripture. If you really want your life to be used, then let the Lord do what he knows will bring him the greatest glory. Now, baby Christians don't understand this. Like all babies, all they care about is themselves. They want their stomachs full and they want their diapers changed. They just want to be satisfied. And while there's nothing wrong with younger believers wanting to be pampered and fed, 
There comes a time in every Christian's life when we need to put away childish things. And here's the thing. It is possible to have been a believer for decades and still be a baby Christian in regards to maturity. When babies are small and need their diaper changed, that is normal and accepted. But if a 30-year-old needs his diaper changed, well, we would all say that that's tragic. There is a point when we should grow up and say, to God be the glory, whatever that might mean to me in my life. Second, not only are the delays determined by the Lord for His glory, but the solution to whatever frustration you are facing is not something, it is someone. I am the resurrection, Jesus says. It's me. I am what you are looking for. Please hear me this morning. The solution to your frustration is the person of Jesus Christ. You don't need any more money necessarily, for Jesus says, I am the bread. You don't need some kind of mystical experience to guide you directionally, for Jesus says, I am the way. It's him. If you realize he is the I am, you will make it through and you'll find yourself actually embracing the difficult day rather than resenting it. Back to J.B. Phillips, embracing them as long-lost friends. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego left the fiery furnace when commanded to do so by Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because it was only in the fire that they found Jesus. So too, if you allow the Lord to do His work, you will perceive the presence of Christ so clearly that you may want to say, Lord, keep me in the fire all the time, if that is the only way I can truly see you. Verse 23, please. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus gives a promise to Martha. But rather than embracing it joyfully and expectantly, Martha just looks at it as a theological principle. Do you ever do that? The Lord opens up a promise to you in the Word about a situation, a relationship, a financial struggle, and you think, well, this probably doesn't apply to this dispensation. This can't really be true for me today. Come on, we say. The Lord isn't really going to bless, heal, restore, and help. There must be some other meaning theologically. It's just too good to be true. But in so doing, we share the mindset of Martha. You're talking theologically, Martha, Jesus says, but I'm relating to you personally. I am the resurrection. I am what you need right now. Now, I would think there's not a believer in this room who doubts the Lord's ability to perform any miracle. What we struggle with is the same thing of which Martha struggled. That is, we don't question his ability, but we do question his willingness. Like the man who told Jesus, I do believe, help thou my unbelief. Like Martha, we say, 
I do believe you're someone special, unique, powerful, the Son of God, even the Messiah. But I can't believe you'd be willing to do something for me. That sounds real nice, Pastor Bill. But I'm going through tough times, and I'm not finding the Lord in the fire. Well, maybe he's there, and you're just not perceiving him. Easter Sunday, Mary was at the tomb. Seeing who she thought was the gardener, she said, Where's the body of my Lord? Not realizing the one standing right before her was the one she was looking for. Now, why didn't Mary recognize Jesus? Perhaps it was because there were tears in her eyes and she wasn't seeing clearly. In the grief that we sometimes have, we often cannot see clearly, even though God might have made his way quite plain to us. And it is hard to see through eyes that are filled with tears. So, too, sometimes our own fears and tears can blind us to the nearness of Christ. But he's there, for he has promised to be. He's been there for you previously, and he has been there for me personally. And sometimes to experience his presence, all we have to do is quit blubbering, dry our eyes, and say, Lord, I believe you will see me through. You may be saying, I understand from this story that the ills of this life are no accident for the one true God. And I am pleased that God, who knows the future, has chosen to reveal the outcome to me. But it is still hard to suffer. Yes, it's always hard to suffer. But the Lord Jesus Christ went through it all before us. He does ask us to suffer sometimes. Indeed, sometimes he ordains it. But he does not ask us to do anything that he has not done first. Nor does he ask us to suffer without at the same time promising to go through us and be with us in our times of suffering. The fact that he has done that is in itself an encouragement. He died, yet rose again. He also suffered, but triumphed gloriously. And so shall we. This present sickness or circumstance, whatever it may be, is not unto death, at least not ultimately. But it might be for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified through that suffering. As we finish up this morning, knowing that Jesus has promised to see us through, that is the hope of the gospel. And it is that that we must always keep our minds upon. Did you ever hear the story of the American swimmer Florence Chadwick? She became the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. She also attempted to swim, to swim from Catalina Island to the coastline of California. What made her failed attempt so noteworthy, though, was the reason why she didn't make it. It wasn't the cold water. It wasn't muscle cramps. It wasn't sharks or a school of jellyfish. It wasn't even the exhaustion of a 16-hour swim. The reason she quit was simply the fog. When the fog rolled in, she wasn't able to see the coastline, and so she decided to quit. 
When she climbed into the boat, she was informed she was less than one mile from the shore. If only she had known how close she was, she could have persevered. Instead, she lost perspective and gave up. But two months after that trial, Florence Chadwick made another attempt. Again, that day the fog was quite heavy. Again, she couldn't see the coastline, but this time she finished the swim. She said that this time, when the fog rolled in, she just kept a mental image of the shoreline in her mind and focused on that. She kept perspective and refused to give up, and that is the key. There are going to be times in every one of our lives when the fog is going to roll in and we're not going to be able to see the shoreline. When that happens, we need to keep our eyes on Christ until we reach the shores of that great celestial city. I will finish with the words of Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles and let us run with the endurance the race that has been set before us. How do we do that? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I admit that sometimes I lose sight of the shore. And sometimes I think you're the gardener when you're actually the garden. Open our eyes and open our hearts to who you are and who you want to be in each of our lives. For you and you alone are the resurrection and the life. We ask all these things in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.